What do you see? Our eyes are used to seeing that which is good for us. Opportunities for our business, for our career, for our enjoyment. But as the author of Hebrews said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What do you see when you look at the cross? Pain, loneliness, despair? There are many people suffering who do not understand that Christ has taken all of this upon himself. For this reason, we want to challenge you. Choose a person you can make a commitment to for a year with the purpose of presenting Christ to them. This can be a friend, your boss, or a neighbor, anyone. Someone you will walk alongside, pray with, and help throughout the year 2020 with the sole objective of modeling the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Who do you see? Well, hey, friends. Tonight we begin episode three of our series, Focus One 2.0, and we're looking into the life of Esther. So if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be looking in the book of Esther, chapter four, or you can always read along on the screen below. So let's begin with Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 5. It says this, Then Esther called for Hatach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in the front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of, of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to her, Do you not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. 
So there's a, a passage I was reflecting on as I was reading through this and meditating on this, this book and this passage in particular this week, and it comes from Jesus in Luke chapter 11, and, and Jesus, or Luke chapter 12, sorry, verse 48, he says, to whom much is given, much is required. You've maybe heard that before, to whom much is given, much is required. And initially, when you hear that, maybe you think like me about initial blessings. You begin to think about the things that you've been given and how you are to steward them and how you are to use them for the, the good and the welfare of others. Maybe you think about finances, resources, how you're to use them and be generous and steward them well for others. And I, I do think that this is in mind, that Jesus is speaking about the physical blessings we've received, the resources that are ours by God's grace. But there's a lot more in view than just the physical blessings and resources we have, the opportunities we've been given, the relationships that we have. All of these things are to be stewarded. And one thing that really stood out to me from that passage in reading the story of Esther is the power that you've been given. To whom much power has been given, much is required. That's interesting. To think about the power that you've been given in the different arenas, and the different spaces and places that God has you, that there's much required of you to use that well and to steward it for the benefit of others. Now, some of you know that in my limited free time, I enjoy playing video games. Now, this is not nearly as much as when I was in college and the responsibility was much lower. Now it's a few hours a week, maybe. Haven't played in a long time. But there was a game that I played a while back that was called Red Dead Redemption 2. Now, I know some of you in the church have played this game. We've talked about it. And it is a game where you play as this outlaw in the late 1800s. And the game is called an open world game, which means that you can do whatever you want. You can go wherever you want. You can talk to whoever you want. And the decisions that you make in the game and different encounters will actually affect the story. It will change things. There's a lot of power that you have as a player, and you kind of feel like you are that person. I felt like I was an outlaw, a cowboy in the late 1800s in the United States. But I remember this was one instance near the end of the game where you're given a choice. And the choice is, after a firefight with some bandits, some bandits, you're, you're called to either go and get the treasure that you were running after that's going to set you up, make you wealthy and successful, or go help your friend get back to his family and get them to safety because they are in imminent danger. And you have to make a choice. Do you go for the treasure or do you help your friend? Now, I'm not going to tell you which one I chose. If you want to know, you can ask me later. You can maybe put your guess in the chat which one I chose. But I'm telling you, it messes with you, these type of games, because it gives you this power to make decisions that seem on the surface easy, but when you're in it, it becomes much more difficult. Because when you've been given much power, there is much required and it's not always easy to use it for the good of others when you could kind of just keep it to yourself and protect yourself. And this is really what the story of Esther is about. It's a story of power. It's a story of place. 
and it's a story of purpose. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a backstory to what's happening here because we jumped into chapter 4. And if you've read through the book of Esther, the story of Esther, you are familiar with some of this, but there's a character here that we read about. His name is Haman. Now, Haman is a high-ranking court official. He is an evil man, and he is power-hungry. In fact, he's so power-hungry that he calls everybody that is around him when he walks through the streets to bow down before him, almost to worship him. And as he's going through the streets one day, people are bowing down before him, and Mordecai refuses to bow. You see, Mordecai is a Jew. He will not bow down to another man. He will only bow down to worship the God that he believes in. Now, Mordecai is the uncle of Queen Esther. Queen Esther is a Jew, but nobody knows it. She hid her, her identity. Mordecai actually encouraged her to do so when she was entered into a beauty competition to become the queen. The king at the time had no queen, and so he had this long, drawn-out beauty competition. Esther was a part of that. She hid her identity. She hid her ethnicity. And Mordecai was behind this. He adopted Esther because she was orphaned. And they were living in Susa and decided to stay there instead of going back to Jerusalem with the other Jews. This is during the time of the Persian Empire, right after the Babylonian Empire. The Persians take over the Babylonians. And if you were with us the last two weeks, you know that we were looking at Nehemiah and Daniel, which takes place in the Babylonian Empire. Now, going back to Mordecai, Mordecai, who is the uncle of Esther, who had adopted her and who put her in this beauty competition, and now she's the queen. He is in the streets one day, refuses to bow down to Haman. Haman is humiliated in front of all these people. He comes to find out that Mordecai is a Jew, and he hates the Jews. And so he goes to the king and creates this lie that the Jews are a threat to his empire. They're a threat to his power. And the king will not stand for that. King Xerxes says, listen, send out a decree. Kill all the Jews. If they are a threat and you say so, and you're a high-ranking official, I believe you, I trust you, go do what you desire. And so the decree is made, sent out for all the Jews to be killed. Mordecai learns of this, feeling Maybe some guilt because this was initiated because he refused to bow, though he knows he should not bow before Haman. Now all of his people in the empire are going to be killed because the decision, even though a right decision that he made. And so Esther, who's in the palace, she hears about Mordecai mourning in the streets of the city, Susa, where they live, the capital. Now, she knows nothing of this decree. She's isolated away. She's in the palace. She doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't have her pulse on the street. She doesn't understand. But she does hear that Mordecai, her uncle, is mourning in sackcloth and ashes. It's this physical sign of great grief. So she's concerned. She thinks, maybe, you know, I can help. So she sends one of her servants to go to him to find out what's happening. Mordecai tells Esther, everything that's been taking place, what Haman has done, that he refused to bow down before him, that he took a stand for his faith, and now 
he has initiated this plot to kill the Jews. In fact, he even made the deal sweeter by telling the king that he was going to backfill the treasury with two-thirds of the annual income that the empire takes in. So the king is happy, Haman is happy, and the Jews are awaiting imminent death. And then Haman, or Mordecai, as he shares this with the servant, tells the servant to go back to Esther to report this, to give her the actual decree that was passed out in the streets so she can see it for herself. And he says, tell her to go in before the king and plead with him for our people. Now, this is not a simple request. Why is it not a simple request? Because nobody knows that Esther is a Jew. She hid her identity. That is going to be a shock to the king and a shock to everybody else that she is a Jew, the people that have now been decreed to be destroyed. And it's also troubling because the Persian Empire was known for a religion known as Zoroastrianism. Now, Zoroastrianism is an interesting religion because they're not aggressively monotheistic. They're not, they don't aggressively worship one god. But they're also not truly polytheistic either, meaning they don't really worship many gods. They're kind of this bizarre hybrid of both where they're okay with other gods and they acknowledge possibly there are other gods, but they consolidate all of the gods and all of the worship into the worship of one god, which is called Ahura Mazda. I drive a Mazda. Feels weird. And so originally this was a benefit for the Jews because the Persians were okay with people having different religions because they just kind of thought, that's great, worship whatever God you want, but really we're all worshiping this one God, Ahura Mazda. But the king had been changing his tune and his support for other religions. He was becoming more aggressive in kind of pushing Zoroastrianism and its belief system on other faiths and other religions in the empire. And Esther knows this. Not only did she lie about who she is, she also believes in a different God and follows a different God. And she's just supposed to go into the king's throne room, his inner chamber, unannounced, which everyone that's ever done that has been killed. And then she says to Mordecai, listen, it's also more difficult because I haven't seen him in 30 days. Like things are not going well in the relationship right now. So you're, you're telling me you want me to go tell him that I am in fact a Jew, that I worship a different God in a time where we're not getting along and to break a very clear law that should put me to death. And so she's hesitant which makes sense why she's hesitant. So she sends this response back to Mordecai. And then Mordecai responds back to her in verse 13 and 14. And so he told the servant to reply back to Esther with this statement. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. He says, they're going to find out eventually, Esther, that you are a Jew. And you're not going to escape death. So don't think that you can kind of protect yourself 
you're eventually going to get found out. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. He says, listen, don't keep silent. But if you decided to keep silent, Esther, God is going to send relief and help somewhere. He is faithful. He is going to protect his people. He's not going to allow us to be destroyed by this decree. But then he says this. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, he says, do you not think that God has you here for this time? See, he's calling her to think about everything that has transpired in their life. Mordecai adopted her, as I said, when she was a child. And there was a decision that they made when they were young, when, when Esther was young, to stay in Susa and not go back to Jerusalem. Because many, many years ago, the Jews were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, but Mordecai decided to stay. Coincidentally, after that, the queen, that, that position is now vacant, and there's a beauty contest, which Esther has entered into, and then she coincidentally is made queen. The king loves her not only for her beauty, but for the connection that they have. And then as she's established as queen, coincidentally, Mordecai overhears of a plot for the king to be killed. Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, saves his life, and she gains even greater influence and appreciation in the king's eyes. You see, Mordecai is telling Esther, do you see all of these things? This is God's faithfulness. This is not coincidence. God has you here in this place for a reason, for such a time as this. And the reason is not to be silent. It is to speak up on behalf of God's people. You see, he's telling Esther that God has you here to be a bridge between those in the center, which is where you are, Esther, and those in the margins. Us, God's people who are facing imminent death. Be a bridge between the center and the margins. See, in this passage, two things really jumped out to me. The first is your place. And the second is your power. Now, first, your place. And what I mean by your place is where does God have you? Where has he placed you? You see, there's a question that every single one of us has asked before, and that is, what is my purpose? Maybe you're asking that question now. What is my purpose? What does God have for me? What does God want for me? What is the life that I'm supposed to live? And typically, when we ask the question, what is my purpose, we begin to evaluate the trajectory that we are on, and we imagine if that is going to get us to a place where we're going to feel satisfied, where we're going to live a life that is successful, where we're going to feel valued. We begin to evaluate, are we going in the right direction? Am I doing the right thing? What is my purpose? But Esther calls us to think about that question from a different angle. Instead of evaluating your trajectory and thinking about your future and how you're going to get there, maybe to 
discover what your purpose is, you ask the question, what is my place? Where does God have me? Why does God have me here? Why does he have me in this job? Why does he have me in this social circle? Why does he have me with this level of influence? Why has he given me these things? Why has he kept these things from me? Why does God have me here? Because if God doesn't make mistakes, which he doesn't, he has you where you are for a reason. Why does God have me here? What is your place? Because here's the truth. Every one of us has a unique place and we have unique power where we have been placed. We are in a unique place with unique power, and so therefore we have a unique purpose. But there's one thing that's true of you if you believe in faith in Jesus Christ, and that is your purpose is to be a bridge between the center and the margins. You have a unique purpose, certainly, but you are called to be a bridge between where you are centered and those in the margins. Now you may hear that and think to yourself, wait, how can I be a bridge to those in the margins? I am in the margins. I am marginalized. And that may be true. And it is true in part, but is not true as a whole. What do I mean by that? You see, if you believe in faith in Christ, regardless of how you've been marginalized by the world, marginalized by those in power over you, marginalized by friends or by family or by authorities or whatever it may be, regardless of how you've been marginalized, you have been placed in the center in Christ. You see, you are a son or a daughter of the King. You are a co-heir with Christ. You have been given the riches of God's kingdom set and established for you to be enjoyed at a future time for eternity based on nothing you've done but the grace of God given to you. This is truly grace. There's nothing more centered than that. You are in the center because of your faith of God's favor. You are in the center of God's grace. And so though you may be marginalized, you may be in the margins, that is not your identity. You have been centered in Christ. You see, your faith places you in a position of power. Your faith does place you in a position of power. You see, as I was considering where we are at and where many in our church find themselves, there are different people that feel that they have been marginalized in different ways. Some that truly have been outcasted for different reasons. So you may be marginalized economically. You may have less than the majority of other people around you and that has made you feel outcasted and pushed away and overlooked. You may be marginalized vocationally. Your job and your director and your bosses may overlook you and you just kind of do your job and you feel in the margins. Truly, you are in the margins. You may be marginalized racially. You may be marginalized mentally. 
you are struggling with mental health. You may be marginalized relationally, where you are not where you want to be. You do not have close friends that you desire. You do not have the romantic relationship that you've been praying for. You feel lonely and isolated and out on the margins. You may be marginalized physically where you're struggling with this constant health issue. You may be marginalized politically, depending on your context. Many of us are in the margins. We are out in places where we feel overlooked, where we feel outcasted. But church, regardless of where God has you, where you have been treated unfairly, where you have been pushed out, your faith has placed you in a position of power. God's will is in fact for you to use the places where you have been centered to reach out to those in the margins. What do I mean by that? So you may be economically in the margins, have less than, overlooked, but maybe you are mentally centered. You are in a a good place with your mental health. And you may be able to reach out to those in the margins to use the place that God has you centered to reach out and be a bridge to those in the margins struggling with mental health to be a support, to be a listening ear, to be a source of wisdom. You may be in the margins racially, but relationally centered. And maybe God is calling you to say, Reach out to those who are struggling with the state of things and the racial and social unrest that we find ourselves in and help anchor people to relationships that can give them hope. It can give them a vision for change. You may be marginalized politically, but racially centered. Maybe God is calling you from that center to reach out to those that are struggling Reach out to those that are hurting and listen and empathize. Be a source of dialogue and communication. You may be marginalized in your health, struggling constantly with health issues, but maybe God has centered you financially or economically where you can look to be a bridge to those who are struggling and give generously, support generously, come alongside those who need someone to care and help them. See, church, God's will for you is to use the place that he has you and the power that it contains to reach out to those in the margins, to be a bridge to those in the margins. There's a famous pastor, an anti-Nazi protester named Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was literally in the center of a society that was marginalizing people and putting them to death. He was a German citizen, and he was capable of just being quiet. As a pastor, he could have just continued his life with his church and allowed the things to spin around and not rock the boat, but he decided to stand up and to vocalize the injustice that was taking place and to shout down that leadership, to cry out for the people that were being 
marginalized, the Jews, which he was not one of. And eventually, he was arrested, he was taken to a concentration camp, and, and he lost his life for this. But he understood that God had him in a place, and he had been given power, and that he was to use it, not for himself, but for others, for those in the margins. And God clearly showed him who those people were in his time. He clearly understood as Esther did that he, he was there in that place, in that moment, with that power for such a time as this. And he has a quote that is so convicting and so challenging. He says, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. Being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. You see, Esther was in a position where she was centered and she was capable in her mind maybe of protecting herself and concealing her identity and don't rock the boat. But she understood that God had her here for such a time as this. He had given her this place. He had given her this power. And though terrified, she was to use it for the benefit of others, those in the margins. And so she responds to Mordecai in verse 15. So that she told the servant to go to Mordecai and reply like this, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days or nights. So go and pray. Begin to pray because I, I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to use the power of my place. I know that's my purpose. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, she says, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. <laughs> I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to use the power of my place. And if I die, I die. But I know that God has me here for such a time as this. She was a bridge between the center and the margins. And you read that, and it is so honorable. It is so incredible, her courage. But it's interesting to look at Esther because she was centered in terms of her position and her influence, but she was also marginalized at the same time because she was a Jew, though her identity was hidden. But she understood very clearly how God was calling her to use her place and the power that it had for those that were outcasted. And we see this example of Esther and we're like, wow, if I die, I die. What courage Queen Esther had. Can I be like Esther? And then we begin to think, no, there's no way I can be like Esther. I mean, we're reading about her because she's remarkable. And then we begin to analyze ourselves. Oh, well, I'm not really remarkable. I don't really have a great place. I don't have, I'm not a queen or a king. I mean, what, what do I have? I don't have great power. But see, the whole point of this book is to remind you that you are like Esther, and God is calling you to live like Esther. You see, we read this, and sometimes we idolize these characters in Scripture, and we act as if they aren't a lot like us. You see, in the beginning chapters, we read about Esther, and we read about Mordecai, and we realize that they are morally dysfunctional. 
As we see here, she's hesitant to really trust what God is very clearly making known to her. We are just like Esther and Mordecai. We're morally dysfunctional. We're about preserving ourselves. We will hide certain things from other people so that we can advance on our own path. We're hesitant to step into what God has for us. But God is faithful. And he makes known to us, as he makes known to Esther, that all these things that have been happening in our life, that have put us in this place, in this moment, in this time, with this power, is not a coincidence, but it is God's purpose and his will for us. See, Esther comes to see that. And she says, I I can't ignore this. I can't be silent. This is, in fact, my purpose right here and now. I don't know what God has for me outside of this, but certainly God has me here to speak up and to speak out. You see, originally, Esther and Mordecai as well were all about self-preservation and self-advancement. And then as they come to see what God has done in their life and who God is calling them to be, His will for them, His purpose for them to reach out and to care for those in the margins from the center, to use the power of their place. They forget about self-advancement. They forget about self-preservation. Esther takes a stand. You know, there's a lot of tension in our country right now. A lot of tension. And As I was beginning to evaluate what is taking place, I was thinking about the center and the margins. You see, there are those in the center that are seeking to minimize the pain of those in the margins as an attempt to maintain power and maintain place. And then there are those in the margins that are seeking to get revenge at the center by destroying it to establish a new place with new power. We see that all over our country. What is that going to get us? Nothing. It's going to get us nowhere. We're going to actually receive nothing from this except for more anger and more division and more hostility. And so church, what is God's purpose for you for such a time as this? Because clearly, It is not to minimize the pain of others, and it is not to seek revenge. See, our call and God's purpose for us is very clear. It is one of empathy. It is one of listening. It is one of justice. It is one of equity. It is one of truth, and it is one of love. We are called to live out a different purpose, a different strategy, a different approach, one that is marked by love. Love for those in the margins. Recognizing where God has us and how he has placed us in the center because of our faith. Church, you have a new place because of Christ. You have a new power because of Christ. And you have a new purpose because of Christ. And it's very clear in Scripture what that purpose is. It's to love. It's to love people. I was reading the most famous verse this week on love. I'll be honest, it was extremely convicting. And as I was reading it, I thought, man, this is what we need, church. 
And as I read this in 1 Corinthians 13, I want you to consider where God has you. What is your place? What is the power that you have? And how is God calling you to love where you are? Because there is great power in that. When you love people in the margins from the center. So here's what love is. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So I want to encourage you, don't pick and choose which aspects of love to follow. Read that, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through verse 8. You see, God is calling us, each one of us, to recognize where He has us, to recognize the power that He has given to us, and to use it to be a bridge to those in the margins by showing love, by being kind and not rude, by enduring, by being a source of hope, by believing, by listening, by not being resentful, by bearing all things. Call to love, church. You see, for we are people who have been placed in the center. We are gospel-centered people. Centered on the gospel, called to look out to those outcasted and left behind and overlooked on the margins and to bring the gospel of grace and love and to say that God sees you. He has a purpose for you. He has a place for you. He has new power for you too. So I pray, church, that we would live as gospel-centered people seeking to be a bridge. Would you pray with me? God, we come together as a church and we mourn over the pain and frustration and anger and fear that is sweeping our country and our church and our city. God, we are in a, in a difficult season. It's been a hard year. But you have us here for a reason. For such a time as this, you have us here in the place that you've put us, with the power that you've given us to be gospel-centered people, people of love. I pray, God, that that would prevail, that that would be what drives us, that that would be our purpose here and now, to be people of love. Truth and love. Would you use us, your church, not just Crossbridge, but your church all over this country to begin to bind up wounds and to heal, to bring hope, to share faith, 
so that we might see your gospel and your glory go out in ways we never imagined would a revival sweep this nation. Through people following after you and seeking to be the bridge in the way that you've called us to, from the center to the margins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.